Chapter Twelve of Mr. Standfast. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter Twelve. I become a combatant once more. I returned to France on thirteenth September and took over my old brigade on the nineteenth of the same month. We were shoved in at the Polygon Wood on the twenty-sixth, and after four days got so badly mauled that we were brought out to refit. On 7 October, very much to my surprise, I was given command of a division and was on the fringes of the Ypres fighting during the first days of November. From that front we were hurried down to Cambrai in support, but came in only for the last backwash of that singular battle. We held a bit of the Saint-Quentin sector till just before Christmas, when we had a spell of rest in billets, which endured, so far as I was concerned, till the beginning of January, when I was sent off on the errand which I shall presently relate. That is a brief summary of my military record in the latter part of 1917. I am not going to enlarge on the fighting. Except for the days of the Polygon Wood, it was neither very severe nor very distinguished, and you will find it in the history books. What I have to tell of here is my own personal quest, for all the time I was living with my mind turned two ways. In the morasses of the Hanabake Flats, in the slimy support lines at Zonnebeek, in the torchened uplands around Flecquieres, and in many other odd places, I kept worrying at my private conundrum. At night I would lie awake thinking of it, and many a toss I took into shell-holes, and many a time I stepped off the duck-boards, because my eyes were on a different landscape. Nobody ever chewed a few wretched clues into such pulp as I did during those bleak months in Flanders and Picardy for I had an instinct that the thing was desperately grave, graver even than the battle before me. Russia had gone headlong to the devil, Italy had taken it between the eyes and was still dizzy, and our own prospects were none too bright. The Bosch was getting uppish, and with some cause, and I foresaw a rocky time ahead till America could line up with us in the field. It was the chance for the wild birds, and I used to wake in a sweat to think what devilry ivory might be engineering. I believe I did my proper job reasonably well, but I put in my most savage thinking over the other. I remember how I used to go over every hour of every day, from that June night in the Cotswolds, till my last meeting with Bullivant in London, trying to find a new bearing. I should probably have got brain fever if I hadn't had to spend most of my days and nights fighting a stiffish battle with a very watchful Hun. That kept my mind balanced, and I dare say it gave an edge to it, for during those months I was lucky enough to hit on a better scent than Bullivant and McGillivray and Blenkiron pulling a thousand wires in their London offices. I will set down in order of time the various incidents in this private quest of mine. The first was my meeting with Geordie Hamilton. It happened just after I rejoined the brigade when I went down to have a look at our Scots Fusilier Battalion. The old brigade had been roughly handled on the 31st July, and had had to get heavy drafts to come anywhere near strength. The Fusiliers especially were an almost new lot, formed by joining our remnants to the remnants of a battalion in another division, and bringing about a dozen officers from the training unit at home. I inspected the men, and my eyes caught sight of a familiar face. I asked his name, and the colonel got it from the sergeant-major. It was Lance Corporal George Hamilton. Now, I wanted a new batman, and I resolved then and there to have my old antagonist. That afternoon he reported to me at brigade headquarters. 
as i looked at that solid bandy-legged figure standing as stiff to attention as a tobacconist's sign his ugly face hewn out of brown oak his honest sullen mouth and his blue eyes staring into vacancy i knew i had got the man i wanted hamilton i said you and i have met before sir came the mystified answer look at me man and tell me if you don't recognize me he moved his eyes a fraction in a respectful glance sir i don't mind of you well i'll refresh your memory do you remember the hall in new mill street and the meeting there you had a fight with a man outside and got knocked down he made no answer but his colour deepened and a fortnight later in a public-house in muirtown you saw the same man and gave him the chase of his life i could see his mouth set for visions of the penalties laid down by the king's regulations for striking an officer must have crossed his mind but he never budged look me in the face man i said do you remember me now he did as he was bid sir i mind of you have you nothing more to say he cleared his throat sir i did not ken i was hitting an officer of course you didn't you did perfectly right and if the war was over and we were both free men i would give you a chance of knocking me down here and now that's got the weight when you saw me last i was serving my country though you didn't know it we're serving together now and you must get your revenge out of the bush i'm going to make you my servant for you and i have a pretty close bond between us what do you say to that this time he looked me full in the face. His troubled eye appraised me and was satisfied. "'I'm proud to be servant to ye, sir,' he said. Then out of his chest came a strangled chuckle, and he forgot his discipline. "'Losh, but ye're the great lad!' He recovered himself promptly, saluted, and marched off. The second episode befell during our brief rest after the Polygon Wood, when I had ridden down the line one afternoon to see a friend in the heavy artillery. I was returning in the drizzle of evening, clanking along the greasy path between the sad poplars, when I struck a labour company repairing the ravages of a Bosch strafe that morning. I wasn't very certain of my road, and asked one of the workers. He straightened himself and saluted, and I saw beneath a disreputable cap the features of the man who had been with me in the cool and crevice. I spoke a word to his sergeant, who fell him out, and he walked a bit of the way with me. "'Great Scott, Wake, what brought you here?' I asked. "'Same thing as brought you, this rotten war.' I had dismounted and was walking beside him, and I noticed that his lean face had lost its pallor, and that his eyes were less hot than they used to be. "'You seem to thrive on it,' I said, for I did not know what to say. A sudden shyness possessed me. Wake must have gone through some violent cyclones of feeling before it came to this.' He saw what I was thinking, and laughed in his sharp, ironical way. "'Don't flatter yourself you made a convert, I think as I always thought. But I came to the conclusion that since the fates had made me a government servant, I might as well do my work somewhat less cushioned than a chair in the home office. Oh, no, it wasn't a matter of principle. One kind of work's as good as another, and I'm a better clerk than a navvy. With me it was self-indulgence. I wanted fresh air and exercise.' I looked at him, mud to the waist, and his hands all blistered and cut with unaccustomed labour. I could realise what his associates must mean to him, and how he would relish the rough tonguing of non-coms. "'You're a confounded humbug,' I said. 
why on earth didn't you go into an otc and come out with a commission they're easy enough to get you mistake my case he said bitterly i experienced no sudden conviction about the justice of the war i stand where i always stood i'm a non-combatant and i wanted a change of civilian work no it wasn't any idiotic tribunal sent me here i came of my own free will and i'm really rather enjoying myself it's a rough job for a man like you i said not so rough as the fellows get in the trenches i watched a battalion marching back to-day and they looked like ghosts who had been years in muddy graves white faces and dazed eyes and leaden feet mine's a cushy job i like it best when the weather's foul it cheats me into thinking i'm doing my duty i nodded towards a recent shell-hole much of that sort of thing now and then we had a good dusting this morning i can't say i like it at the time but i like to look back on it a sort of moral anodyne i wonder what on earth the rest of your lot make of you they don't make anything i'm not remarkable for my bonhomie they think i'm a prig which i am it doesn't abuse me to talk about beer and women or listen to a gramophone or grouse about my last meal but i'm quite content thank you sometimes i get a seat in a corner of a y m c a hut and i've a book or two my chief affliction is the padre he was up at keble in my time and as one of my colleagues puts it wants to be too bloody helpful what are you doing hannay i see you're some kind of general they're pretty thick on the ground here i'm a sort of general soldiering in the salient isn't the softest of jobs but i don't believe it's as tough as yours is for you do you know wake i wish i had you in my brigade trained or untrained you're a dashed stout-hearted fellow he laughed with a trifle less acidity than usual almost thou persuadest me to be combatant no thank you i haven't the courage and besides there's my jolly old principles all the same i'd like to be near you you're a good chap and i've had the honour to assist in your education i must be getting back or the sergeant will think i've bolted we shook hands and the last i saw of him was a figure saluting stiffly in the wet twilight the third incident was trivial enough though momentous in its results just before i got the division i had a bout of malaria we were in support in the salient in very uncomfortable trenches behind Velchi, and i spent three days on my back in a dugout outside was a blizzard of rain and the water now and then came down the stairs through the gas curtain and stood in pools at my bedfoot it wasn't the merriest place to convalesce in but i was hard as nails at the time and by the third day i was beginning to sit up and be bored i read all my english papers twice and a big stack of german ones which i used to have sent up by a friend in the g h q intelligence who knew i liked to follow what the boche was saying as i dozed and ruminated in the way a man does after fever i was struck by the tremendous display of one advertisement in the english press it was a thing called gusseter's deep breathing system which according to its promoter was a cure for every ill mental moral or physical that man can suffer politicians generals admirals and music-hall artists all testified to the new life it had opened up for them i remember wondering what these sportsmen got for their testimonies and thinking i would write a spoof letter myself to old gusseter then i picked up the german papers and suddenly my eye caught an advertisement of the same kind in the frankfurter zeitung it was not gusseter this time but one weissmann and his game was identical deep breathing the hun style was different from the english 
all about the goddess of health and the nymphs of the mountains, and two quotations from Schiller, but the principle was the same. That made me ponder a little, and I went carefully through the whole batch. I found the advertisement in the Frankfurter, and in one or two rather obscure Volksstimmes und Volkszeitungs. I found it too in der Grosse Krieg, the official German propagandist picture-paper. They were the same all but one, and that one had a bold variation, for it contained four of the sentences used in the ordinary English advertisement. This struck me as fishy, and I started to write a letter to McGillivray, pointing out what seemed to be a case of trading with the enemy, and advising him to get on to Mr. Gussiter's financial backing. I thought he might find a Hun syndicate behind him. And then I had another notion, which made me rewrite my letter. I went through the papers again. The English ones, which contained the advertisement, were all good, solid, bellicose organs, the kind of thing no censorship would object to leaving the country. I had before me a small sheaf of pacifist prints, and they had not the advertisement. That might be for reasons of circulation, or it might not. The German papers were either radical or socialist publications, just the opposite of the English lot, except the Grosse Krieg. Now, we have a free press, and Germany has, strictly speaking, none. All her journalistic indiscretions are calculated. Therefore the Bosch has no objection to his rags getting to enemy countries. He wants it. He likes to see them quoted in columns headed, Through German Glasses, and made the text of articles showing what a good Democrat he is becoming. As I puzzled over the subject, certain conclusions began to form in my mind. The four identical sentences seemed to hint that deep breathing had Bosch affiliations. Here was a chance of communicating with the enemy which would defy the argus-eyed gentlemen who examined the mails. What was to hinder Mr. A. at one end writing an advertisement with a good cipher in it, and the paper containing it getting into Germany by Holland in three days? Herr B. at the other end replied in the Frankfurter, and a few days later shrewd editors and acute intelligence officers, and Mr. A., were reading it in London, though only Mr. A. knew what it really meant. It struck me as a bright idea, the sort of simple thing that doesn't occur to clever people, and very rarely to the Bosch. I wished I was not in the middle of a battle, for I would have had a try at investigating the cipher myself. I wrote a long letter to McGillivray, putting my case, and then went to sleep. When I awoke, I reflected that it was a pretty thin argument, and would have stopped the letter if it hadn't gone off early by a ration party. After that, things began very slowly to happen. The first was when Hamilton, having gone to Boulogne to fetch some mess stores, returned with the startling news that he had seen Gresson. He had not heard his name, but described him dramatically to me as the wee red-headed devil that kicked Ecky Brocky's knee yon time you was in Glasgow, sir. I recognized the description. Gresson, it appeared, was joy-riding. He was with a party of Labour delegates, who had been met by two officers, and carried off in shower-bangs. Hamilton reported from inquiries among his friends that this kind of visitor came weekly. I thought it a very sensible notion on the government's part, but I wondered how Gresson had been selected. I had hoped that McGillivray had weeks ago made a long arm and quadded him. Perhaps they had too little evidence to hang him, but he was the blackest sort of suspect, and should have been interned. A week later I had occasion to be at G.H.Q., on business connected with my new division. 
My friends in the intelligence allowed me to use the direct line to London, and I called up McGillivray. For ten minutes I had an exciting talk, for I had had no news from that quarter since I left England. I heard that the Portuguese Jew had escaped, had vanished from his native heather when they went to get him. They had identified him as a German professor of Celtic languages, who had held a chair in a Welsh college, a dangerous fellow, for he was an upright, high-minded, raging fanatic. Against Gresson they had no evidence at all, but he was kept under strict observation. When I asked about his crossing to France, Macgillivray replied that that was part of their scheme. I inquired if the visit had given them any clues, but I never got an answer, for the line had to be cleared at that moment for the war office. I hunted up the man who had charge of these labour visits, and made friends with him. Gresson, he said, had been a quiet, well-mannered, and most appreciative guest. He had wept tears on Vimy Ridge, and, strictly against orders, had made a speech to some troops he met on the Arras Road about how British labour was remembering the army in its prayers, and sweating blood to make guns. On the last day he had had a misadventure, for he got very sick on the road, some kidney trouble that couldn't stand the jolting of the car, and had to be left at a village, and picked up by the party on its way back. They found him better, but still shaky. I cross-examined the particular officer in charge about that halt, and learned that Gresson had been left alone in a peasant's cottage, for he said he only needed to lie down. The place was the hamlet of Aucourt Saint anne For several weeks that name stuck in my head. It had a pleasant, quaint sound, and I wondered how Gresson had spent his hours there. I hunted it up on the map, and promised myself to have a look at it the next time we came out to rest. And then I forgot about it till I heard the name mentioned again. On 23rd October I had the bad luck, during a tour of my first-line trenches, to stop a small shell-fragment with my head. It was a close, misty day, and I had taken off my tin hat to wipe my brow when the thing happened. I got a long, shallow scalp wound, which meant nothing but bled a lot, and as we were not in for any big move, the M.O. sent me back to a clearing station to have it seen to. I was three days in the place, and being perfectly well, had leisure to look about me and reflect, so that I recall that time as a queer, restful interlude in the infernal racket of war. I remember yet how on my last night there a gale made the lamps swing and flicker, and turned the grey-green canvas walls into a mass of mottled shadows. The floor canvas was muddy from the tramping of many feet, bringing in the constant dribble of casualties from the line. In my tent there was no one very bad at the time, except a boy with his shoulder half-blown off by a whiz-bang, who lay in a drugged sleep at the far end. The majority were influenza, bronchitis, and trench fever, waiting to be moved to the base, or convalescent and about to return to their units. A small group of us dined off tin chicken, stewed fruit, and radon cheese around the smoky stove, where two screens manufactured from packing-cases gave some protection against the draughts, which swept like young tornadoes down the tent. One man had been reading a book called The Ghost Stories of an Antiquary, and the talk turned on the unexplainable things that happened to everybody once or twice in a lifetime. I contributed a yarn about the men who went to look for Kruger's treasure in the bushveld, and got scared by a green wildebeest. It is a good yarn, and I'll write it down some day. A tall Highlander, who kept his slippered feet on the top of the stove, 
and whose costume consisted of a kilt, a British warm, a grey hospital dressing-gown, and four pairs of socks, told the story of the Camerons at first Ypres, and of the lowland subaltern who knew no Gaelic, and suddenly found himself encouraging his men with some ancient highland rigmarole. The poor chap had a racking bronchial cough, which suggested that his country might well use him on some warmer battleground than Flanders. He seemed a bit of a scholar, and explained the Cameron business in a lot of long words. I remember how the talk meandered on, as talk does, when men are idle and thinking about the next day. I didn't pay much attention, for I was reflecting on a change I meant to make in one of my battalion commands, when a fresh voice broke in. It belonged to a Canadian captain from Winnipeg, a very silent fellow who smoked shag tobacco. "'There's a lot of ghosts in this darn country,' he said. Then he started to tell about what happened to him when his division was last back in rest billets. He had a staff job, and put up with the divisional command at an old French chateau. They had only a little bit of the house. The rest was shut up, but the passages were so tortuous that it was difficult to keep from wandering into the unoccupied part. One night, he said, he woke with a mighty thirst, and since he wasn't going to get cholera by drinking the local water in his bedroom, he started out for the room where they messed in to try to pick up a whiskey and soda. He couldn't find it, though he knew the road like his own name. He admitted he might have taken a wrong turning, but he didn't think so. Anyway, he landed in a passage which he had never seen before, and since he had no candle he tried to retrace his steps. Again he went wrong, and groped on till he saw a faint light, which he thought must be the room of the G.S.O., a good fellow and a friend of his. So he barged in and found a big dim salon, with two figures in it, and a lamp burning between them, and a queer, unpleasant smell about. He took a step forward, and then he saw that the figures had no faces. That fairly loosened his joints with fear, and he gave a cry. One of the two ran towards him, the lamp went out, and the sickly scent caught suddenly at his throat. After that he knew nothing till he awoke in his own bed the next morning with a splitting headache. He said he got the general's permission, and went over all the unoccupied part of the house, but he couldn't find the room. Dust lay thick on everything, and there was no sign of recent human presence. I give the story as he told it in his drawling voice. I reckon that was the genuine article in Ghosts. You don't believe me and conclude I was drunk? I wasn't. There isn't any drink concocted yet that could lay me out like that. I just struck a crack in the old universe and pushed my head outside. It may happen to you boys any day." The Highlander began to argue with him, and I lost interest in the talk. But one phrase brought me to attention. "'I'll give you the name of the darn place, and the next time you're around you can do a bit of prospecting for yourself. It's called the Chateau of Eaucourt Saint anne about seven kilometres from Douvecourt. If I was purchasing real estate in this country, I guess I'd give that location a miss." After that I had a grim month, what with the finish of Third Ypres, and the hustles to Cambrai. By the middle of December we had shaken down a bit, but the line my division held was not of our choosing, and we had to keep a wary eye on the Bosch doings. It was a weary job, and I had no time to think of anything but the military kind of intelligence fixing the units against us from prisoners' stories, organizing small raids, and keeping the Royal Flying Corps busy. I was keen about the last, and I made several trips myself over the lines with Archie Roylance, 
who had got his heart's desire, and by good luck belonged to the squadron just behind me. I said as little as possible about this, for G.H.Q. did not encourage divisional generals to practice such methods, though there was one famous army commander who made a hobby of them. It was on one of these trips that an incident occurred which brought my spell of waiting on the bigger game to an end. One dull December day, just after luncheon, Archie and I set out to reconnoitre. You know the way that fogs in Picardy seem suddenly to reek out of the ground and envelop the slopes like a shawl. That was our luck this time. We had crossed the lines, flying very high, and received the usual salute of Hun Archies. After a mile or two the ground seemed to climb up to us, though we hadn't descended, and presently we were in the heart of a cold, clinging mist. We dived for several thousand feet, but the confounded thing grew thicker, and no sort of landmark could be found anywhere. I thought if we went on at this rate we should hit a tree or a church steeple, and be easy fruit for the enemy. The same thought must have been in Archie's mind, for he climbed again. We got into a mortally cold zone, but the air was no clearer. Thereupon he decided to head for home, and passed me word to work out a compass course on the map. That was easier said than done, but I had a rough notion of the rate we had travelled since we had crossed the lines, and I knew our original direction, so I did the best I could. On we went for a bit, and then I began to grow doubtful. So did Archie. We dropped low down, but we could hear none of the row that's always going on for a mile on each side of the lines. The world was very eerie and deadly still, so still that Archie and I could talk through the speaking-tube. "'We've mislaid this bloody battle!' he shouted. "'I think your rotten old compass has soured on us,' I replied. We decided that it wouldn't do to change direction, so we held on the same course. I was getting as nervous as a kitten, chiefly owing to the silence. It's not what you expect in the middle of a battlefield. I looked at the compass carefully, and saw that it was really crocked. Archie must have damaged it on a former flight, and forgotten to have it changed. He had a very scared face when I pointed this out. "'Great God!' he croaked, for he had a fearsome cold. "'We're either about Calais or near Paris, or miles the wrong side of the Bosch line. What the devil are we to do?' And then to put the lid on it, his engine went wrong. It was the same performance as on the Yorkshire Moors, and seemed to be especially of the shark Gladys type. But this time the end came quick. We dived steeply, and I could see by Archie's grip on the stick that he was going to have his work cut out to save our necks. Save them he did, but not by much, for we jolted down at the edge of a ploughed field with a series of bumps that shook the teeth in my head. It was the same dense, dripping fog, and we crawled out of the old bus and bolted for cover like two ferreted rabbits. Our refuge was the lee of a small copse. "'It's my opinion,' said Archie solemnly, "'that we're somewhere about La Cateau. Tim Wilbraham got left there in the retreat, and it took him nine months to make the Dutch frontier. It's a giddy prospect, sir.' I sallied out to reconnoitre. At the other side of the wood was the highway and the fog so blanketed sound that I could not hear a man on it till I saw his face. The first one I saw made me lie flat in the covert, for he was a German soldier, field-gray, forage-cap, red-band and all, and he had a pick on his shoulder. A second's reflection showed me that this was not final proof. He might be one of our prisoners, but it was no place to take chances. I went back to Archie, and the pair of us crossed the ploughed field, and struck the road farther on. 
There we saw a farmer's cart with a woman and child in it. They looked French, but melancholy, just what you would expect from the inhabitants of a countryside in German occupation. Then we came to the park wall of a great house, and saw dimly the outlines of a cottage. Here, sooner or later, we would get proof of our whereabouts, so we lay and shivered among the poplars of the roadside. No one seemed abroad that afternoon. For a quarter of an hour it was as quiet as the grave. Then came a sound of whistling and muffled steps. "'That's an Englishman,' said Archie joyfully. "'No Bosch could make such a beastly noise.' He was right. The form of an Army Service Corps private emerged from the midst, his cap on the back of his head, his hands in his pockets, and his walk the walk of a free man. I never saw a welcomer sight than that jam merchant. We stood up and greeted him. "'What's this place?' I shouted. He raised a grubby hand to his forelock. "'Ock at St. Annie, sir,' he said. "'Beg pardon, sir, but you ain't worth, sir.' Ten minutes later I was having tea in the mess of an M.T. workshop, while Archie had gone to the nearest signals to telephone for a car and give instructions about his precious bus. It was almost dark, but I gulped my tea and hastened out into the thick dusk, for I wanted to have a look at the chateau. I found a big entrance with high stone pillars, but the iron gates were locked and looked as if they had not been opened in the memory of man. Knowing the way of such places, I hunted for the side entrance, and found a muddy road which led to the back of the house. The front was evidently towards a kind of park. At the back was a nest of outbuildings and a section of moat which looked very deep and black in the winter twilight. This was crossed by a stone bridge with a door at the end of it. Clearly the chateau was not being used for billets. There was no sign of the British soldier, there was no sign of anything human. I crept through the fog as noiselessly as if I trod on velvet, and I hadn't even the company of my own footsteps. I remembered the Canadian's ghost story, and concluded I would be imagining the same sort of thing if I lived in such a place. The door was bolted and padlocked. I turned along the side of the moat, hoping to reach the house-front, which was probably modern and boasted a civilized entrance. There must be somebody in the place, for one chimney was smoking. Presently the moat petered out, and gave place to a cobbled causeway, but a wall running at right angles with the house blocked my way. I had half a mind to go back and hammer at the door, but I reflected that major-generals don't pay visits to deserted chateaus at night without a reasonable errand. I should look a fool in the eyes of some old concierge. The daylight was almost gone, and I didn't wish to go groping about the house with a candle. But I wanted to see what was beyond the wall, one of those whims that beset the soberest men. I rolled a dissolute water-butt to the foot of it, and gingerly balanced myself on its rotten staves. This gave me a grip on the flat brick top, and I pulled myself up. I looked down on a little courtyard with another wall beyond it, which shut off any view of the park. On the right was the chateau, on the left more outbuildings. The whole place was not more than twenty yards each way. I was just about to retire by the road I had come, for in spite of my fur coat it was uncommon chilly on that perch, when I heard a key turn in the door in the chateau wall beneath me. A lantern made a blur of light in the misty darkness. I saw that the bearer was a woman, an oldish woman, round-shouldered like most French peasants. In one hand she carried a leather bag, and she moved so silently that she must have worn rubber boots. 
The light was held level with her head, and illumined her face. It was the evilest thing I have ever beheld, for a horrible scar had puckered the skin of the forehead, and drawn up the eyebrows, so that it looked like some diabolical Chinese mask. Slowly she padded across the yard, carrying the bag as gingerly as if it had been an infant. She stopped at the door of one of the outhouses, and set down the lantern and her burden on the ground. From her apron she drew something which looked like a gas-mask, and put it over her head. She also put on a pair of long gauntlets. Then she unlocked the door, picked up the lantern, and went in. I heard the key turn behind her. Crouching on that wall, I felt a very ugly tremor run down my spine. I had a glimpse of what the Canadian's ghost might have been. That hag, hooded like some venomous snake, was too much for my stomach. I dropped off the wall and ran, yes, ran, till I reached the high road and saw the cheery headlights of a transport wagon, and heard the honest speech of the British soldier. That restored me to my senses, and made me feel every kind of a fool. As I drove back to the line with Archie, I was black ashamed of my funk. I told myself that I had seen only an old countrywoman going to feed her hens. I convinced my reason, but I did not convince the whole of me. An insensate dread of the place hung around me, and I could only retrieve my self-respect by resolving to return and explore every nook of it. End of chapter 12